You can pray until you faint. But if you don't get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. And it's no need of running and no need of saying, Honey, I'm not going to get in the mess. And on probation, the cops entrapped him again, this time for selling under five grams of marijuana. So that was really a, a very small amount of, of marijuana he, he was caught selling. But it was the second strike. You know, it didn't matter how much it was. It was just, it was enough to, to get him uh, to, uh, to be sentenced uh, to a 100-day shock treatment with a 10 years backup time. That was Angelica Mueller Rowry, wife of Robert Rowry. Uhuru, welcome to Black Power Talks. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today on Black Power Talks, we talk with Angelica Mueller Rowry about her husband, Robert Rowry, an African man who died inhumanely chained to a hospital bed in 2014. This story is extremely relevant in conversation with contemporary discussions about mass imprisonment in the United States. On Thursday, December 8th, 2022, the Women's National Basketball Association superstar Brittany Griner was released from a Russian prison colony where she had been held for a period of time following her conviction on drug charges. On February 17, 2022, Griner was detained by Russian officials for bringing hashish oil into the country. Griner's case was amplified by the subsequent increase in the Russia-Ukraine conflict the following week on February 24, 2022. Griner was convicted on August 4, 2022 and sentenced to nine years in prison. Griner was released as part of a prisoner swap between the United States and Russia. The United States returned Victor Bout an arms dealer, previously set to be released in 2029. The United States had aimed to get the former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who was sentenced by Russia in 2020 on espionage charges. Here's a clip of U.S. President Joseph R. Biden following Griner's release. Well, good morning, folks, and it is a good morning. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. These past few months have been hell for Brittany and for Charlie and, uh, and her entire family and all her teammates back home. People all across the country have learned about Brittany's story advocated for her release, stood with her through, throughout this terrible ordeal. And I know that support meant a lot to her family. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits. She, uh, she's relieved to finally be heading home. 
And the fact remains that she's lost months of her life, experienced a needless trauma. She deserves space, privacy, and time with her loved ones to recover and heal from her time being wrongfully detained. That was U.S. President Joseph R. Biden. Grinder's release was welcomed with a groundswell of support and jubilation by people around the world. People have also underscored the hypocrisy of the United States government around the issue of incarceration. In 2022, there were almost 2.5 million people in U.S. prisons and another half million in local jails. Millions more are on probation and parole. Half of these people are African. There are more Africans in prison and jails in the U.S. than 10 countries in Africa. There are more Africans in prison and jails in the U.S. than all people in prison in Russia. There are anywhere between 2,000 and 30,000 people in U.S. prisons for marijuana and cannabis charges that get no serious attention. Martin Nelson and Erica Bryant of Vera, a nonprofit organization fighting against mass incarceration, addressed the contradiction in their article entitled, Brittany Griner's Sentence Should Be a Wake-Up Call About Cruel Prison Sentences in the U.S. In the article, Nelson and Bryant chronicled the story of Alan Russell, an African man who was given life in prison as part of Mississippi's habitual offender law after he was convicted for having 1.5 ounces of marijuana in his possession. The Mississippi Supreme Court upheld his conviction. On December 8, 2022, Chairman Amalia of the African People's Socialist Party spoke to these contradictions in a live stream address. But let's look at uh, what the situation is. If we are going to measure uh, the character and the nature of, uh, of, of the country based on, uh, on, on the treatment of, of, of Griner uh, on the, uh, as an African person. And as far as I know, by the way, uh, as an aside, uh, Brittany Griner is the only African in prison in Russia uh, for marijuana or for anything. Um, if there are more people there, it certainly doesn't approach anything like what we see in the United States where one out of every eight human beings on earth who's locked up in prison uh, is an African in the United States. And where Africans just deal with the issue of marijuana charges, which is what Griner uh, uh, was sentenced for, Africans are 3.6 times more likely than white people who are the colonizers uh, to be arrested on marijuana charge. And if you look at uh, the fact, of course, is that uh, the United States uh, has by far the largest uh, prison population per capita in the whole world. And that you look at uh, Louisiana, uh, which has the second largest prison population per capita in the world, Louisiana, uh, where 1,100 uh, per 100,000 people are in prison uh, in that state. And, and for Africans uh, who are in Louisiana, it's 2,800 uh, per uh, in prison per 100,000. And of course, the most notorious prison in, 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 in Louisiana is Angola, named for a place in Africa, which is a statement about the character and nature of the colonial power of the United States versus what we're looking at in Russia. The United States is only second to Louisiana in terms of per capita people who are locked up in prison uh, at 664 uh, persons per 100,000. Uh, in Russia, Russia had uh, uh, 380 uh, 
people per 100,000 people in prison. In other words, um, Louisiana's rate of imp imprisonment per capita is three times higher than Russia's. And if you look at Louisiana, you're talking about most of them are Africans versus Russia. Uh, and if you look at the reality, uh, uh, Brittany uh, Griner, and we are all sympathetic with uh, for Brittany Griner, this African woman, but in the United States, according to the United States Department of Justice report, uh, that the rate of incarceration for African women is 113 per 100,000, more than twice that of females at 51 per 100,000. So we look at Brittany Griner, we look at the conditions of African people and specifically of African women in the United States. So, and Biden is the one who's the cheerleader for the return of Brittany Griner to the United States, but Biden is also the person who is responsible for many of the people who we're talking about, Africans who are locked up in prison uh, for this crime bill of 1994 that he has even admitted uh, as responsible for this enhanced, the just growing numbers of African people shoved into prisons uh, throughout this country. And then, of course, uh, this Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which Biden is responsible for in 1994. And this bill reinforced the existing piece of legislation the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which created these huge disparities uh, in sentencing uh, between crack cocaine, which was something that was manufactured in the laboratory and put in African communities by the CIA. Uh, and anybody can, can learn about this now. You can Google this. It's uh, such a well-known fact. Uh, in fact, our slogan used to be in the African People's Socialist Party uh, that the White House, uh, that is the crack house, the rock house. And Uncle Sam is the pushing man. So uh, 1994, this, 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 this Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act pushed by Biden and the police department reinforced this legislation that was called the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, uh, which created this huge disparity uh, between uh, 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 people who are in prison uh, with this uh, crack uh, uh, cocaine derivative, this that was created specifically for African people. Uh, and then uh, the white colonizer of uh, cocaine, uh, powder cocaine. And so under this bill that Biden's law helped to uh, uh, reinforce, a person uh, was sentenced to a five-year minimum sentence, a five-year minimum sentence for five grams of cocaine, of crack cocaine. <clears throat> but it took 500 grams <laughs> of pilot cocaine, that is to say the majority colonizer white uh, drug, uh, took, it took 500 grams of powder cocaine to trigger the same sentence. So this is uh, what we're looking at in terms of making these comparisons that the United States has asked us to make in terms of the treatment of African people by uh, the United States government, especially around drugs and things uh, of that nature, uh, democratic rights, and and uh, uh, by Russia, and so this thing about Brittany Griner, I just hate being used, and I and and we're not chumps, and the and the United States government is attempting to pimp us uh, uh, by uh, saying that somehow uh, 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 what's happening to Griner uh, uh, to Griner uh, in Russia uh, is an example of oppression and exploitation, and. Uh, We've heard uh, that uh, Brittany Griner is now free. But of course, that's a lie. She can't be free because she is an African. 
and she might come to the United States under the illusion of being free. But the reality is that African people in the United States are colonized. And I think it's extremely significant that the United States would say that Russia freed Britain and Grinder. Uh, because I think uh, part of what the United States, and we hear all the time, anytime masses of African people have been engaged in struggle for the last 100 years or so, uh, struggling against colonialism, struggling, uh, that included even people uh, uh, like Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois and others. Uh, it, it was always said, the African people socialist party, that somehow it was the Russians uh, who uh, were responsible for this is issue of freedom that we were fighting for. Now the United States government is telling us that Russia has uh, forgotten about everybody else except Britney that the Russians have freed uh, Brittany Griner. And I posit to you, I tell you that Brittany is not free. And if she thinks so right now, uh, she'd better be careful on her way from the airport uh, where she landed to her home, uh, because there's a great possibility that she could become uh, one of those African women in the United States who are filling the prisons uh, uh, for the most uh, casual and ridiculous kinds of charges. So what we're saying is that what has to happen, brothers and sisters and comrades, first of all, uh, we're just tired of being used like that. And we do have the ability to think. And we do have the ability to come to conclusions uh, different from those which are put uh, forward to us by those who are responsible for exploitation and oppression. That was Chairman Omalia Satella of the African People's Socialist Party. All of this brings us back to the case of Robert Rory husband of Angelica Mueller-Rowery of St. Louis. On January 18, 2014, Robert died in isolation from his family and friends, a ward of the state, shackled to a bed in a community hospital after he qualified for intensive care the last day before his death. His death came a little over a week after he was denied medical release and about two months before he was scheduled to be paroled. President Biden spoke of the intolerable conditions in Russia. Alan Russell of Mississippi and Robert Rowery of Missouri display the unjust and inhumane conditions of U.S. prisons where small-time drug possession becomes a death penalty. To discuss this with us today, we have Angelica Mueller-Rowery of North St. Louis. Uhuru, comrade Angelica, uh, how are you doing today? Uhuru, Matsumela. Thank you for inviting me uh, to speak today. Now, Angelica, we just talked a little bit about your husband, Robert. Can you tell us about your husband, Robert? How did you all meet? Uh, Robert was born at Homer G. Phillips in the Ville. Back then, uh, that was a very proud and de still de facto uh, segregated community. Uh, Homer G. Uh, was famous for its excellent health care and employed a thousand people at the time. You know, it was closed down in the mid-70s for no other reason than to break the community apart. Robert's mother died of cancer when Robert was 12, and he took it very hard. Um, his father was a cook in the Navy during the Korean War, and later he had his own tavern. It was uh, right next to where five years ago Paul McKee evicted the last hundred or so families and sold the whole area to the National Geospatial Spy Agency. It was an all-black neighborhood. Robert knew everybody and had a lot of friends there. So you can already see how, you know, kind of what happened in that area. So how did we meet? 
actually, you know, I came to the United States right after high school and was volunteering at a community center on College Hill. Our kids came from the same community where the Uhuru House and all the Black Power Blueprint projects are now located. We were both 20 and met at a house party. That was in 1974. My German roommate had met one of Robert's cousins at Carver House, and she invited us. Decades later, Robert told me uh, that he had the DJ play My Girl, and I didn't even notice. <laughs> what I remember is dancing to the OJ's Ship Ahoy. That was really powerful. Robert had uh, dropped out of high school in 12th grade, was learning to fix cars at the time. He had taught himself to play guitar by ear and played in a band, and he composed. At the time, he was on probation for CCW, uh, carrying concealed weapon, which basically every young person did at the time just to, you know, kind of be on the safe side. Shortly before um, I had to go back to Germany, six months later, he got shot in the ear. That was the first of four times uh, that he barely escaped death. He never wrote back at the time, and then um, my life went on. I became a social worker and got involved in politics and got married and uh, later divorced and bought a 300-year-old farmhouse that I rehabbed, and before I knew it, 20 years had gone by. Oh, wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you for that um, great and uh, what I even suggest poetic description of how uh, you and Robert met, you know. One of the things that uh, I do know is that you eventually rekindled your connection with Robert. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's very poetic too. In you know, um, I really have to say first in Germany we uh, heard next to nothing about what was going on inside the United States. Nothing about the drug war. Nothing about how the black communities were flooded with crack cocaine. There was no internet at the time. I have to remember, you know. So it wasn't until um, after Rodney King beating and you know, kind of the aftermath that I started thinking about Robert and his family again, wondering, you know, what had happened to them. So in 1997, um, I came to St. Louis for a couple of days, and I was, I mean, I was so shocked. I was really devastated. I was devastated. There was nothing but ruins and rubble everywhere. The whole north side looked like it had been bombed. I mean, you know, for real. And Mr. Mr. Rory's uh, house was gone. I mean, his father's house was gone. The house next door where his sister used to rent was vacant and crumbling. And the last neighbor on the block told me that the whole family had left after, uh, you know, their father's death and that Robert was still alive, which was not a given, you know, um, but that he didn't care for nothing no more. You know, I could have tried to find him um, right there and then, but I didn't just want to bust into his life like that. It, it took me a year to get in touch with his older sister in Las Vegas, and she t uh, told me Robert was on crack cocaine. Uh, she connected me with another sister who still lived in uh, on the south side of St. Louis, and, um, you know, Jackie, she made contact with Robert. So in 1999, after 25 years, I came back, and uh, that's when Robert, um, you know, sarcastically welcomed me to the ghetto. Yeah, he let me, what he called, live and learn. 
he put me in all kinds of situations because I wanted to know what his life was like. You know, he, in the beginning he said, okay, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to keep you away from all the bad stuff as much as I can. But I said, you know, I, I do want to know, you know, that's what I came for, right? So, um, you know, all, all of this is described in my memoir that I will actually be publishing in spring. Um, you know, from then on, I came as often as I could for three months at a time on a visitor's visa. So, yeah, that's very interesting, you know, that you um, never forgot about him all that time. And when opportunity uh, did emerge that you, you know, rekindled your connection uh, with Robert. <clears throat> I just want to take a step back, ask you, you said that they didn't talk about any of this stuff going on with African people in the U.S. when you were in Germany. Uh, what sort of stuff did you learn or did you hear anything? I mean, I was involved in politics, so I was um, actually founder of the Green Party in Germany. Literally, we only heard about uh, um, HIV, I mean, when uh, AIDS, you know, the AIDS epidemic was on, but that was not directly connected to the black community. I mean, it was just in general. So, but we really did not hear anything about anything about crack. I had no idea crack existed even. Wow. You know, what's actually interesting is that I was doing some research and the first person reported to die from HIV was an African person in St. Louis in like the 1960s as the research now goes. So I, I think even that sort of takes us back towards these contradictions and the colonial conditions African people in North St. Louis endure for us to understand that it's almost 20 years before it becomes uh, a pandemic or something that uh, the colonial um, st system, you know, begins to care about once it starts taking the lives of other people. But, but yeah, um, uh, it says that, uh, you know, research suggests that an African person from St. Louis, uh, you know, just, you know, just by happenstance, uh, you know, was actually the person, the first person to die. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we're discussing mass imprisonment and the life and death of Robert Rowry of St. Louis, Missouri, with his wife, Angelica Mueller-Rowry. This brings us back towards the issue of Robert's community in North St. Louis. He was born and raised in the African community of St. Louis Place on the city's north side. He was only a teenager when he witnessed the military defeat of the Black Power movement by U.S. government counterinsurgency. One objective of counterinsurgency is to demoralize the masses, driving them out of political life. Robert was indeed a casualty of the counterinsurgency campaign waged against our movement. Did Robert ever express his demoralization about what happened to our movement to you? You know, what I do remember is that when he was in solitary confinement for a longer time, that was like 2006, 
four or five or something, he wrote about hearing uh, Angela Davis speak at a church across from Carver House on Cardinal. Um, he must have been 14 or 15 at the time, and that the church was packed and that he was trying to listen, but they kicked him out. I mean, he did, they didn't let him in because uh, it was so, you know, uh, so crowded. Uh, in, in 1974, I mean, you could still, when I, when I was there in 1974, you could still feel the black and proud everywhere. And I know Robert loved James Brown, you know, and the uh, black and I'm proud. One older brother-in-law was a Black Panther in Chicago, actually. Uh, so Robert was well aware of the movement and how it was crushed. Um, what I do know is uh, that he um, didn't want to have to do anything with what he called the system. You know, he was what one of his nephews called a free spirit, and he was a very proud man. He didn't take no you know, from no one. And by the time I came back in 1909, uh, he was so frustrated and had so much anger in him um, about how his community had been destroyed, um, you know, that he kind of blocked that out. Uh, because on the other hand, Robert was, he was a realist. Um, for him, the Black Power movement was like, really like history. You know, it was, it was gone. And so you have to, you know, uh, carry on. And, and um, you know, he was in survival mode when I came back. He had turned that suppressed rage against himself. Yeah, Uhuru, thanks for that. And, you know, that's not by happenstance, you know. That for sure, for sure is by design. Now, Something like one-third of Africans in North St. Louis live on $5 or less a day. Over his lifetime, how did Robert's community change? You spoke about it a little bit, about Paul McKee and the developers. I know there's the idea of benign neglect placed upon the community and things like that. So, yeah, how did his community change? How did the community of North St. Louis change over his lifetime? Yeah, I've already described some of, you know, what I saw when I came back. Uh, I mean, from a once really livable community where you could work and get services and shop and go places to meet people and enjoy life, you know, there was really nothing, uh, literally nothing left. Um, Homer G was decaying when I came back. It was later turned into senior apartments. The carburetor factory on North Grand was a con really a contaminated mess for some 20 years before they finally tore it down. The car manufacturing plant on Natural Bridge had been disassembled and moved to White South County, you know, in the wake of affirmative action, you know, so um, to keep black people from getting jobs you know they they had to move the, the they had to move the factories and uh, you know on the other hand small businesses closed down one by one uh, you know robert was often talking about that uh, when the community started suffering from the influx of illegal drugs and became a war zone the people who had lived in North St. Louis, they fled to North County and to South City or they left St. Louis for good just like most of robert's siblings now we heard about really this political assault and this economic assault against the African community of North St. Louis. What are some of the things that Robert had to do to make ends meet? I mean, Robert was very versatile. He was highly intelligent and, I mean, he could basically do anything. In the early 1970s, Robert had difficulties as a young man. He had 
difficulties finding a job that was not minimum wage factory, hard factory work. And he hated that kind of work. So for years, um, you know, he got into playing music. He made a living playing his guitar in the clubs in East St. Louis. Um, but, you know, that was really not uh, enough to live on um, if he didn't come out big. But that's where he must have met Albert King. And uh, he went on tour with him uh, through Mississippi, you know, I think, I don't know how many times, um, at least one time, um, you know, in the backwoods and in the towns. I mean, he really liked that. That period of time, I think, was the best in his whole life. Um, you know, after his son was born in 1979, he worked in Illinois in the caves growing mushrooms, and he hated mushrooms from that on, time on. He never ate mushrooms in his whole life again because they were grown on... Um, that was uh, that that job was an affirmative action job. He told me once. Um, for a while, he had his own construction business, but lost everything when an employee fell off the scaffold. Um, you know, drunk and died because Robert had no insurance. Um, you know, he also played with Bootsy Collins for a bit. I don't know anything about that. You know, his family told me about that later, and with Ice T before he became famous. He said that by the early 1990s, his life had lost meaning. And that was, you know, because um, his son's mother had died. His stepson got locked up for uh, for, mur for, for a second degree murder and uh, came out actually after 15 years later. His father had died. His younger brother had died. So many people he was close to had uh, died for different reasons. And um, that really took a toll on him. You know, at that time, he was also, after his son's mother died, he was denied custody of his son, Maliki, and DFS threatened to charge him with harboring the ward of a state. Maliki was sent from one children's home to another and always ran away to be with his dad. At about age 15 or so, um, he, just like so many other teens from East St. Louis, was shipped uh, to a racist small town in southern Illinois, and Robert couldn't do anything about it. Maliki was literally tortured in that juvenile facility. At age 18, he was dumped back in the streets with a bogus diagnosis of schizophrenia and a bag of pills, although, you know, what he suffered from was PTSD, and that Robert suffered of that too. So that's when Robert dropped out of mainstream society completely. You know, he was a street fighter at the time, made money kickboxing in the street. You know, people betting on who would win. That is how he dealt with his anger and rage. You know, but mainly Robert hustled and uh, worked as a roadside mechanic. He re repaired all the old model cars of all his father's friends. But Robert could repair anything. You know, he rehabbed houses, he fixed TVs, refrigerators, freezers uh, for a little, you know, kind of cornerstone business, um, you know, in the area. You name it. And for, uh, you know, his friends and neighbors, he often did it just for a meal or even for free. In 1999, he helped passing out free lunches uh, to the community once a week until that church moved to another location. In return, uh, he, uh, you know, the people who helped got leftovers and other food items, and he gave that to his kids. He said he did it for his peace of mind. You know, that was basically, but Robert, you know, I mean, he was so, I mean, he was so intelligent. He could have, he could have been a, a rocket scientist for real, you know, if he had grown up and lived under different conditions. And it's so, it's so, that really makes me really sad and it makes me really angry. As it should, as it should, you know, and that really, 
you noted those conditions are colonial conditions. You know, you know, there's this film that came out. It was called Twelve Years a Slave. I found it to be a profound film. It was done by an African man uh, out of England, and one of the things that I think the film notes is that the enslavement of African people, the colonization of African people, is precisely because of the brilliance and the promise that African people have. And when we understand that, then we can begin to, I think, construct the world uh, that we need to create. So I really appreciate um, you sharing that background about Robert. As Angelica noted, Robert Rowry was a blues musician. The following is a recording of Robert performing James Brown's It's a Man's World at the Missouri Eastern Correctional Center. In his own revision, Robert identifies the colonial contradiction, stating, man makes penitentiaries to give us a job. Man makes them guards to keep them out of the dark. Baby. Not worthy of 
Robert Rowery performing It's a Man's World at the Missouri Eastern Correctional Center. Angelica, Chairman O'Malley Shatella of the African People's Socialist Party notes that part of the U.S. counterinsurgency campaign was the imposition of a drug economy on the African community. We've spoken about that already, but can you tell us a little more about that? By by the time I came back to, uh, to St. Louis in 1999, the crack epidemic was already at its tail end, but the damage was done and it was done, you know, completely. So every, every year, St. Louis City issued a report called Children at Risk, but they were, you know, but the city was doing nothing, you know, just issuing those reports and the statistics for the black neighborhoods. And in, this was in every imaginable aspect of life. They were staggering, staggering in itself. But in the in contrast to the richer, pre- predominantly white parts of town, south of Derma, uh, they were just horrific, you know, and they still are. Some of his friends, uh, you know, when I came back, some of his friends uh, lived in vacant buildings, uh, doing hustles and selling crack to feed their habit, you know, and Robert did that too. Many of his customers lived in the Hyde Park area in nice houses, both, you know, black and white people. That's how money came into the hood, I think, you know. But in the shadow economy, crack was really the main currency. I remember times when Robert got angry when some young guys, you know, refused to pay him cash for a car repair and wanted to give him rocks. For many years, there were hardly any cops to be seen in his community. That changed drastically. Uh, One city hall targeted the area for redevelopment. You know, I remember um, uh, one time we uh, were walking uh, on the street and he said, we are walking across uh, what will be the future golf course, but, you know, kind of um, uh, guess who's going to play there. I mean, it's not our people, you know, it's going to be people who live and work uh, close uh, in at uh, downtown, you know. Um, but that is when this area was targeted for redevelopment, uh, that's when the sweep clean started. In 2001, uh, Robert got tricked into the first buy and bus scheme uh, with an undercover cop. That was a, a $50 crack deal. And on probation, the cops entrapped him again, this time for selling under five grams of marijuana. Uh, you mentioned earlier those, um, how much was this? One and a half ounces of uh, marijuana. I kind of, um, looked it up and that would be, I think, 41 grams of marijuana that, uh, you know, this, um, African gentleman who got convicted that you mentioned earlier. So that was really a, a very small amount of, of marijuana he, he was caught selling, but it was the second strike. You know, it didn't matter how much it was. It was just, it was enough to, to get him, uh, to, uh, to be sentenced uh, to a 100 day shock treatment with this 10 years backup time. Wow. 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 So, so his second strike was for such that small amount of marijuana. That's crazy. I did some research and showed that Africans never actually use crack and of course not cocaine, uh, anything disproportionate 
to to our percentage in society, uh, white people were always the predominant users of crack cocaine, the predominant sellers even of crack cocaine. White people were never targeted for uh, crack cocaine. And even we'll talk about this too, but you know, when they did get targeted, as we see now with the opioid epidemic, they get treatment, but treatment is something different for them than it is for us. That's why I want us to uh, talk some more about Robert, because it really is important to have this conversation. He was sent to prison for only $50 of crack as part of Missouri's three strikes law. He worked diligently to improve himself to no avail uh, within that prison system. It really seems like the harder he worked to do better, the harsher they treated him. So what can you tell us about his conviction? During this 120 shock treatment, he was doing quite well. And it was actually the first time when he was um, really thinking that he should be or could be changing his life, you know, and and turn it around. I mean, that had uh, a lot to do with that in this particular treatment. They had one um, black uh, counselor and, uh, you know, he he trusted that counselor. And uh, that made a huge difference because all the other treatments he before that, you know, he was was in one in the community, which was really a joke. And, uh, you know, kind of later uh, he was in other uh, um, treatment program, so-called treatment program which were, I mean, just horrific. Uh, so that running into this gentleman who triggered the best in him, I would uh, say, you know, and, and really reminded him of what he could be, you know, that gave him a head start. And that was uh, cut short because 10 uh, a week before uh, a completion of that program, he was, you know, just taken out of this program. Nobody told him why. He t- he said he walked. He, they told him to to uh, to to get out of the treatment room, and he walked to the door, and the uh, door, you know, kind of just shut, and he had no idea was taken <laughs> to segregation. Uh, had no idea what happened. The PO. I have it in writing how she, uh, you know, kind of really tried to paint him as a, a violent offender. And that is uh, the judge followed uh, this recommendation. So he was pulled out of that treatment program. And Robert later told me, you know, why would you uh, light a fire? And he was talking about, you know, how he was um, starting thinking about things in relation to uh, his his own drug problem and uh, his uh, ro- the role he had played in the community and then put the fire out. But that's exactly what happened. What I do want to say is, you know, the other treatment program that he was later ordered to do in prison was a so-called, it was like more like a boot camp setting. And, uh, you know, they had to pull each other up and, and push each, uh, push each other down and, and, and snitch on each other. And it was like mostly, uh, young people, uh, in there. And I think they were really majority white. And he got kicked out of that program and it gave him another two years, um, you know, kind of more, uh, his, because his, uh, parole hearing was, I mean, he did have his parole hearing, but they denied his parole at that time. So that's the kind of thing, you know, that's how uh, these programs work. I mean, they're designed to basically really humiliate people. They're designed to to make them, uh, you know, to subdue them and to make them really, you know, like, yeah, what they want them to be. You are listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
Today, we're discussing mass imprisonment and the life and death of Robert Rowry of St. Louis, Missouri, with his wife, Angelica Mueller Rowry. Now, his endless incarceration led to uh, his death. Can you tell us about his last days, the struggle around getting him free and things like that? This whole time in prison had really taken a toll on him. And, uh, you know, Robert was never sick, so he did not really pay attention much to his body. But, you know, he was always doing okay. And, uh, you know, but suddenly um, in 2013, in summer 2013, it started that he was uh, having symptoms of uh, that we first thought was like a summer flu or gallstones or something like this. But he kind of like kept ignoring it as long as he could. And uh, it was basically in November. And then he one time he, uh, he went to a medical, to sick call, what, what they call sick call. And, uh, you know, kind of he didn't get to see a nur- even a nurse because uh, there was a long line of people, you know, waiting to be seen. And by the time uh, he wa- it was his turn, uh, the time was up, you know, and they had roll call or whatever, you know. He did not go, you know, told, was told he was supposed to come back the next day. Um, he didn't do this. So because he just, you know, didn't feel like he wanted to go through this again. And it wasn't until in November in 2013 uh, that he was coughing up blood and he knew it must be something serious. So from then on, you know, kind of it really uh, was really just a nightmare. Beginning of December, he was diagnosed with a, a baseball size um, liver cancer. And from then, and then, you know, nothing happened for a whole month except seeing him go down. And, uh, you know, he eventually in between basically not getting any services at all. Um, he was getting weaker and weaker, was even denied um, his uh, liquid diet, you know, that he uh, was prescribed because uh, the gods were, you know, too, too lazy to bring it to him and told him, well, go and get it. And he said, well, how can I, uh, if I could get it, I wouldn't need it. In the middle of December, he was really balling up in pain and a cellmate you know, called me and told me about it. So I contacted the, the caseworker. The caseworker told me, well, medical didn't do anything and didn't send him to the uh, to the infirmary, so he must be okay. And I had an altercation with him and later an altercation with the warden because, you know, I, I got the warden and told him, you have to do something about this. And the warden said, oh, I'm not in charge. This is medical. You know, I'm only in charge of the institution. And, uh, you know, I really cussed him out. And, um, and he told me, he would be happily sued. And that is a quote. So from then on, you know, kind of he had more exams at around Christmas. Um, they detected a lung embolism at the time. And that could have cured him right there and then, you know, kind of. So um, then they transferred him from Algoa Correctional Center, which was a level two prison, to Tipton um, way in in the sticks, you know, in the, in the southwestern part of Missouri. And um, uh, there he was in the infirmary on what they call a sleeper status you know like oh, he was only su- uh, supposed to be there as long as he got treatment right but he didn't get treatment they basically just monitored how it was going down and i was given you know false information i was giving half truth i was giving old lab results I, it was just a, a horrible time it was a horrible time and all the time we were waiting you know for the appointment for the oncologist which was in the beginning of january scheduled at uh, on january 3rd or 4th and uh, you know because uh, the staging and she was supposed to do this uh, see how far the cancer were, had progressed and was it like metastasizing because staging meant you know level four 
cancer meant, of course, he was going to die, but it, uh, uh, because at the same time that meant he would be eligible for medical parole. It was uh, just, I mean, it was horrible for weeks. And, uh, you know, then uh, he was stage level four, and that's when the struggle started, you know, kind of with the, the lawyer that I had gotten, actually, uh, Randall Cahill here in St. Louis, you know, very, very compassionate lawyer. He was trying everything he could to get him, because it's a very complicated process. So we were trying this, and then, you know, kind of on, I think it was January 9th that the parole board denied his parole, but it wasn't until the 15th that Robert got this notification. During this time period from, you know, when the staging was done on um, January 3rd or 4th, and, uh, you know, when he the parole had been denied, he did not get the treatment that he was supposed to get because they were basically waiting for the outcome of this parole board decision, whether he would get medical parole or not, um, because, um, you know, the cancer drug is very expensive. And that's, you know, a reason, you know, you find all over that they deny any thing that they can, it was a private company called Corizon at the time, and they deny basically any treatment that they possibly can. So they were waiting. And then, you know, I was told by the, you know, the head nurse there, the administrator, the drug was hard to get. At first thought, you know, I mean, this is crazy. Why Why would it be hard to get all you have to do? Because I even called the pharmacy here and asked, how long does it take to get this drug? And they said, oh, just 24 hours. And, uh, you know, kind of, Later, I thought about it. Well, it was actually really hard to get, and she was true about right about this because the the head um, medical person in charge over the whole horizon he had to agree. I mean, he had to uh, give his consent, and that was indeed indeed hard to get. Yeah, so because um, that's they always have to make the last uh, judgment call on on any treatment and any drug that is being given out to any prisoner. Robert did not get that treatment until the parole board had uh, declined his parole. After Robert found out, and that is really how this is, I mean, you know, at that point, it was really too late, you know, for the treatment altogether. I, I, I'm thinking in hindsight. But uh, of course, we were, you know, kind of waiting and anticipating what's going to happen and will it help? You know, it, it was it was just a horrible situation. Then he got the cancer drug, and uh, three days later, he was dead. You know, the last day before, and that is why he died in a hospital bed. You know, the last, last day before his death, he finally qualified for intensive care, which they could not provide in the infirmary. And this is why they had postponed it for so long, because that is, of course, very expensive, and it comes out of uh, Horizon's budget. You know, uh, Gorizon or any private company uh, that is uh, where the, out, uh, the medical services are outsourced to from the Department of Corrections, so-called corrections, they get a, a overall amount. And from that, they have to pay everything, which means like they, you know, want to keep the expenses down as much as possible. And uh, that's why you only get Tylenol when you're sick. And, you know, that's why, you know, they deny you any procedures that have to be done outside the facility as long as possible and make you, you know, more sick in, in the process. All this, of course, you know, I only found out much later. Uh, at the time, it was really, you were wondering what's happening. You know, why is this not, you know, why is this, why is it happening like this? Um, so, but the last day of his life he spent 
in uh, the infirmary in the in the last corner of the hospital on the upper upperest floor <laughs> you know uh, i had to walk uh, we, uh, when he had passed you know we had to walk through the whole hospital and up the you know until we really got to the very last corner you know to god standing up front in front of the door he was uh, chained uh, he was shackled one hand was shackled to the bed his feet were chained to the bed and, uh, you know, kind of, and this is how he passed. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I know that your fight for Robert and justice around Robert has not ended. Uh, can you tell us about that fight and what people can do to help you out? Yes. Um, you know, after Robert passed, um, I was so full of, as you said, you know, I was so full of anger and, of course, sadness that I, um, I filed, uh, you know, eventually filed a wrongful death. I wanted, well, I did eventually file a wrongful death suit, which was actually dismissed by the judge. You know, like we had filed for uh, deliberate indifference, and that was dismissed with prejudice, which means like um, he uh, really kind of. Yeah, threw this out, and uh, medical malpractice was uh, dismissed with uh, without prejudice, which means like I could pick it up, you know, and and go. I could have picked it up and gone into appeal, but uh, you know, kind of. I mean, it's uh, an appeal cost ten thousand dollars. What I also did is, uh, you know, I wanted to. Uh, I mean, Robert is just one in so many people um, who who go through uh, similar things, or you know, who um, so many prisoners who experience different medical conditions um, at uh, any point of time. I mean, all the time. Um, you know, don't get the care that they need. So what I did is, you know, kind of I hooked up with Missouri Cure, which is a prison reform organization, and I uh, actually met them at the event when uh, Michelle Alexander was, um, you know, had a book coming out, uh, The New Jim Crow. But over the next two, uh, three and a half years, or almost four years, I uh, documented evidence of medical malpractice and deliberate indifference within just the Missouri a department of so-called corrections of 250 plus prisoners, you know, who had, um, you know, different issue, medical issues um, or also abuse, uh, you know, of abuse that was going on in, in just in Missouri and in, in the state prisons. And, uh, you know, the reason why I did this was, I mean, on one hand side, I, it was a way of helping those individuals possibly, um, which was very limited, turned out to be very limited. But I was uh, basically trying to get documentation for a class action lawsuit. But that did not materialize because class, class action is... Um, it, it cannot be too broad and it cannot be too narrow. So uh, that, you know, nobody really wanted to pick this up. And I think another reason is uh, lawyers really pick uh, what they hope they can win. And that was really, yeah, difficult to win. What we did accomplish is, um, you know, we got with the MacArthur Justice Center here, uh, which had opened up a dependence here in St. Louis. We filed a lawsuit, or they filed a lawsuit um, for those prisoners uh, suffering from hepatitis C. And that was uh, basically our biggest win, you know, that we could accomplish at the time. Wow, wow, well, <clears throat> well, you know, I think that, uh, your efforts, your case, uh, the uh, story of what has happened to Robert, but also the fight that's going on really underscores the importance for organization, for, you know, a black community control over health care, 
incarceration, the police, and all other aspects of the work is really, really important. Now, to find out more about Missouri Cure, people can go to www.missourycure.org as well on the stlamerican.com. There is a obituary written by Angelica uh, for Robert Rowry, uh, her husband. So I want to thank you, Angelica, for coming on to the show. You know, this won't be the last time you're on the show. And, you know, I just really want to be, uh, you know, be grateful for you sharing the story of Robert and us opening up the space for uh, you to be a part of today's show. Yes, thank you. And I just want to say uh, how much I appreciate uh, being on the show because it means uh, that Robert uh, did not die in vain the way he did. You also asked, you know, how um, people could support uh, me or us, you know, kind of. I think uh, I, I do want to say uh, something like as uh, a last word. Um, um, I think, you know, it's important to educate people about uh, the human rights violations that are going on behind uh, those death fences, you know, what I try to do. But ultimately, you know, the only way to get to the root of the problem is really to create communities where people are not forced into uh, destructive lifestyles and where they can live in dignity. And I think, you know, that that is uh, uh, the main reason why I support uh, the Back Power Blueprint, you know, so much. Ohuru, ohuru. Thank you. You have been listening to Black Power Talks, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we discuss mass imprisonment and the life and death of Robert Rowry of St. Louis, Missouri, with his wife, Angelica Mueller Rowry. Our theme song, Get Up and Do Something, was written and performed by Elikia Ngoma. Thanks to the Black Power Talks production, research, and promotions team. Now, we would like to close out the show with another excerpt of Robert Rowry's music. I Play the Blues for You, performed at a live concert at the Missouri Eastern Correctional Center. Come on over To the place where I work I've got the suit, I'll play the blues for you
Take me home. 